Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your live local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss was questioned today by a House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol last year. (coughs) Speaker Voss was reportedly the last witness to be interviewed before the panel finishes its report. Voss was compelled to appear via subpoena, which he unsuccessfully tried to quash by filing a federal lawsuit. Today, Voss answered questions about his phone call with Donald Trump in the summer of 2021, in which Trump urged Voss to decertify the 2020 election results. Voss alleges that he told Trump that there was no constitutional basis for him or the legislature to decertify an election. (laughs) Trump later described Voss as a rhino or Republican in name only in tweets. The former president later endorsed a candidate running against Voss in a primary. And staying on the topic of certifying elections for a moment, in a matter of minutes, the bipartisan Wisconsin Election Commission certified the results of the 2022 fall election today. That's a stark contrast from the aftermath of the 2020 election when Republicans bombarded the commission with numerous charges and complaints as a means of of delaying certification. Election official election certification is normally a simple procedure in which the chair of the commission reviews the reports of the county clerks, ascertains that they are correct, and moves to certify the results. Verona High School has created a display for the flags of Wisconsin's indigenous nations, reports Madison 365. Verona School Superintendent Tremaine Clardy said that the district created the display as an intentional strategy to increase a sense of belonging. School counselor Leslie Morrison got the ball rolling three years ago, reaching out to all 12 nations seeking donations of the flags. The city of Monona has stripped an ordinance from its books related to firing, defining nuisance properties. That's after the ordinance was used to threaten the landlord of a victim of domestic abuse. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Commission, uh, Civil Liberties Union, threatened to sue the city after a police officer contacted a landlord and said that the landlord was, quote, one call away from being in violation of the ordinance due to calls to the police about the victim's abusive husband. The landlord said that he has told the victim to move due to a threat of a fine. He said the, he, he was unaware of the circumstances leading to the police calls. The city's police chief, Brian Cheney, said that the officer did not intend to inhibit the woman's right to contact the police and that the ordinance may have been interpreted in a way that it was not intended. Downtown drivers beware. The outside lanes for both northbound John Nolan Drive and southbound (coughs) South Blair Street will be temporarily closed tomorrow morning through Friday afternoon. Single lanes will still be open, but it will be slower. City engineer Jim Wolf notes that this is only the end of the beginning as the 2022 construction season comes to a close. Construction will resume on the intersection and on East Washington next spring. The Madison School Board is slated to meet this Friday to discuss an appeal to reinstate the fired principal of Senate Middle School. That's according to reporting from the Capital Times. Last night, the school board met in closed session to discuss the appeal, but the short meeting ended with no apparent decision and school board members declined to comment. According to a district spokesperson, the board did not make any decision. 
Jeffrey Copeland was fired about two months ago after leaving what were deemed to be improper comments about a job applicant in a phone message. The firing, however, spurred an outpouring of support from teachers and parents who have asked that he be reinstated. Copeland has objected to his firing and asked to be reinstated. He also requested a public hearing on his dismissal. The school board said that it had not received that request. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Yesterday, Madison saw its second high-profile shooting in two weeks, this time under the holiday decor of State Street. For an update on yesterday's incident, here's WORT producer Nate Weggie Haupt. Holiday lights, crime scene tape uh, are not a good match, ever. Yesterday afternoon, a man was shot outside of Michael Angelo's coffee house on the 100 block of State Street. Witnesses say that they heard multiple gunshots sending pedestrians running past recently strung holiday lights. Police and emergency services quickly arrived on the scene, and the area just off the Capitol Square was cordoned off for about two and a half hours as police gathered evidence before the rain. The victim was conscious when taken out of the small coffee shop and taken to an area hospital where he received surgery. Madison police say that the man is expected to survive. The gunman escaped the scene and as of 4.30 this afternoon is still at large. Police say that the man should be considered armed and dangerous, but that it was a targeted shooting and that there is no current threat to the public. Last night's Badger game ended with a shelter-in-place order for fans in the Cole Center after police were given a tip of a suspicious person in the area by a Metro bus driver. After an unsuccessful search of the area, the order was lifted around 10.30 last night. It was the second high-profile shooting in as many weeks after a man was shot and killed near John Nolan Drive earlier this month. Madison police officials say that they have not found the suspected shooter in that incident and have no updates at this time. Earlier today, the Madison Police Department held a press conference to inform the public of everything they know as of today. On top of providing updated information on the incident, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes took the time to remind everyone that, despite recent high-profile shootings, Madison, and especially the area at the top of State Street, is safe. In 2021, we responded to 11 weapons incidents in the zone. Yesterday's shooting was the first weapons incident this year. The Madison Police Department also says calls for service to the area have been on the decline. While there were close to 100 calls in October of 2017 and 2019, this year they had under 40 calls. Still, Barnes says that they will be increasing patrols around the area. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout. Last night, the United States Senate passed a new law to protect same-sex and interracial marriages in the event that the Supreme Court rolls back protections for marriage equality in the future. Our reporter Andy Barrow has the story. Yesterday afternoon, the U.S. Senate passed the Respect for Marriage Act, sending it to the House for revisions before President Biden can sign it into law. The bill requires states to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states. It requires that same-sex couples are entitled to federal benefits, like Medicare and Social Security. It also affords these same protections for interracial marriages. The goal of the Respect for Marriage Act is not to secure new rights for same-sex couples. Instead, it's to enshrine rights that already exist. 
Democratic senators, led by Wisconsin's own Tammy Baldwin, hope that it will protect same-sex marriage should the Supreme Court overrule their previous findings in favor of marriage equality. Steve Sparkey, the executive director of the LGBTQ plus nonprofit Outreach Madison, explains. Um, so it doesn't go as far as, um, you know, uh, ensuring that there would be legal gay marriage in all states, but it does uh, make sure that people who do currently have um, gay marriages um, would not, those would not be rescinded. Legal gay marriage became the law of the land just seven years ago when the U.S. Supreme Court held in Obergefell v. Hodges that the Constitution enshrines a right for same-sex marriages to be recognized by all states. But those rights are in jeopardy this year, after the Supreme Court case that removed federal abortion protections also put other rights to privacy on notice. In writing a concurrence to that case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that the court should reconsider Obergefell and several other precedent-setting cases. If they were to do so, it could affect the over 500,000 Americans who live in same-sex couple households today. Wisconsin's two state senators, Democrat Tammy Baldwin and Republican Ron Johnson, were on opposite sides of the vote. Baldwin, who was the first openly gay senator when she was elected in 2013, helped lead the team that drafted and proposed the bill. Johnson, meanwhile, initially said he would support a bill protecting same-sex marriage, but flipped after winning his re-election campaign, citing a fear that the bill would infringe on religious liberties. In a live stream hosted by Isthmus newspaper last night, Senator Baldwin said Justice Thomas's concurrence was what inspired her to act. One justice, Clarence Thomas, wrote in a concurring opinion that we should relitigate um, mm-hmm the uh, uh, contraception, contraceptive access uh, uh, cases, the um, Lawrence case, the um, Obergefell case. He actually sort of issued a figurative invitation to litigators to yeah. present cases to allow the Supreme Court to reconsider and overturn. So there were literally millions of Americans who were scared, um, frightened that their marriages might not be recognized sometime in the future. And those, you know, who have yet to, but maybe dream of marriage, um, might, that it might be foreclosed to them. And that's what made the Respect for Marriage Act necessary. If Obergefell is overruled, Wisconsin will be one of the states affected. That's because Wisconsin's constitution states that only marriages between one woman and one man will be recognized by the state. Although Wisconsin courts have held that this same-sex marriage ban is unconstitutional under Obergefell, that goes out the window if Obergefell is overturned. In that event, the Respect for Marriage Act will kick in to protect same-sex couples married in other states, ensuring that their marriages are legally valid in Wisconsin. Starkey said that the process of passing bills like this, which codify already existing rights, is like rebuilding. Unfortunately, um, during the Trump administration, a lot of laws that had been passed um, and parts of laws um, were struck down or were altered um, by the Trump administration. And so, you know, we're kind of uh, rebuilding, I would think, at this point. I think we've come a long way, but we are still second-class citizens in a lot of ways. During the Senate session, Republican negotiators introduced an amendment to the act guaranteeing that religious organizations will not be required to perform same-sex marriages. The amended bill passed the Senate 61-36, to 
with Wisconsin's other senator, Republican Ron Johnson, voting against it. The news comes as conservative state legislatures across the country are passing laws that explicitly discriminate against LGBTQ people by restricting their access to public institutions and health care. A bill called the Equality Act, which would forbid discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, passed the House last year but never made it to the Senate. The Respect for Marriage Act will return to the House for review before President Biden can sign it into law. Senator Baldwin said that she expects the bill to become law in the next couple weeks. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. Debts taken on by local governments across Wisconsin hit record highs in 2020 as cities, towns, and municipalities fight to replace aging infrastructure and technology. That's the subject of the newest report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan policy research organization here in Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Jason Stein, research director with the forum and author of the report, to learn more. little bit of a baseline here because I feel like not a lot of people really understand what what debts local governments uh, take on and what that sort of means. So let's let's start there. Why, why do lo- local governments take on debts and then from whom do they take them from? How, how does this all work? Sure. So local governments generally issue debt or borrow money to take on, you know, capital projects, long-term projects. Those might be you know, rebuilding a road or, you know, putting in place a bridge or, you know, building a police station or just, you know, simply uh, uh, buying police cruisers, something like that. And they they do it by, you know, essentially um, issuing debt to uh, to lenders to, you know, they, they go to the financial markets, essentially, and uh, take back this money and then they pay it back over a period of time, like 10 years. And now getting into uh, your report now, uh, you found that uh, the total debt that governments, uh, local governments, I should say, took on across the state uh, rose by over 5% in uh, 2020. Uh, And you also found that this has sort of been a trend for the last few years. So starting there, tell me about what's the current state of our local governments when it comes to uh, the debts that they're taking on. Sure. So there's more than 1,900 local governments in Wisconsin, like cities, villages, towns, and counties. And in 2020, which is the most recent year we have data for, in 2020, they collectively owed uh, more than $11 billion. That is uh, up about 40% over 2000, even after you adjust for inflation. So, you know, the, the debts uh, held by local governments collectively particularly municipalities, are at their, their highest levels in the data we have. And your research starts all the way back in, in 2000 and looks all the way up to, uh, like you said, the latest numbers, which are from 2020. So when, when you take inflation into account in all of this, uh, what, what, what sort of local government debts looked like over the last two decades? I know you touched on this a little bit before. Yeah, sure. So there's certainly, you know, even after accounting for inflation and population growth, uh, the debts are at their highest levels um, on record for local governments as as a whole and for municipalities. Uh, for counties in particular, they have actually uh, fallen somewhat from their uh, their inflation adjusted peak in around 2010. Um, 
one thing though that does sort of um is a silver lining to this is that over the past 10 years the state has had very uh robust growth in property values and so if you look at these debts as a share of uh, the local government's ability to repay them, you know, which property values are a pretty good proxy for ability to pay, you see that uh, they they actually are are have moderated somewhat in recent years, or at least um, you know in the last few years, uh, debts as a share of property values have not not grown, uh, unlike you know like say per capita debt. In your report here, it isn't all doom and gloom, like you said, uh, with the with the uh, property taxes and things like that. They they have been able to lighten the load a little bit. I was wondering if you were uh, would be able to go into that a little bit more for me. How yeah. how sort of uh, the rising in property taxes sort of helps out uh, with some of the burden of the debt that local governments take on. Sure. So, uh, you know, I think one of, one of the best examples would be. Um, the city of Madison. So, you know, the city of Madison has seen, you know, quite a, an increase in uh, debt per capita over the past uh, 20 years, even after you adjust for inflation. So, you know, uh, debt per capita inflation adjusted in the year 2000 was $919 per city resident. It, it, in 2020, it was more than 2200 but, you know, which is relatively high. On the other hand, Madison has pretty high property values, which gives the city a better ability to repay what it borrows. And, you know, if you look at the city's debt levels as a share of its property value, you know, those have really not risen all that much, at least over the past 10 years. And, you know, they they remain, you know, relatively low. So, you know, the city of Madison actually has a higher per capita debt level than the city of Milwaukee. But when you look at debt as a share of property values or as, you know, a function of the city's ability to repay it, you know, they're less than 2% of property value in Madison, whereas the debt load in Milwaukee is more than 3.5% of, of overall property value. So, you know, th- there can be multiple ways of, of looking at this issue. And I think, you know, probably ultimately debt as a share of property value is the best way to look at it because you're looking at it as, you know, is this something that that the local government's in an ability, you know, in a position to repay? And so what is what does all of this mean for for local governments? We we know what happens when, you know, an individual takes on debt, but when a city or a town or something takes on all this debt, what what does that mean for sort of the uh, the future health of a city? Right. Well, so I think, you know, this is something that we need to keep an eye on, but not necessarily panic over at this point. Um, you know, debt is just a tool. And so, again, it's like if you think about it, a family, if your family is going into debt to throw a big party, that, that may not be a good or a wise move. If the family is going into debt to buy a home or put their child through college, you know, that may be a really good investment that pays a lot of dividends for the family. And it's the same for a local government, right? Um, you know, if you're using debt to, um, you know, ensure high quality infrastructure that, you know, ensures that the community can can have a good economy and uh, move people and goods from place to place, that can be, you know, a very worthwhile investment that pays for itself. You know, if, 
if you know the debt is being used to do uh you know on spending that is you know not going to give a good return then that's going to be um you know more problematic but you know at the same time so even though you can you know debt often use it for good things there are some reasons to be concerned about it be, you know the larger the payments on the debt are from year to year you know the less money is going to be available for you know public safety for libraries for streets for all the other services that a community wants and we, because we are in a period here of in rising interest rates that can also make debt uh, more difficult to repay so you know those are you know those are reasons on the one hand to not uh, have a knee jerk reaction that bar- all borrowing is bad but also to be you know, at least somewhat cautious about this trend that we're seeing. I've been talking with Jason Stein, research director over at the Wisconsin Policy Forum, about their newest report, which outlines the record high debts local governments in Wisconsin have taken on in 2020. Uh, you can read the full report for yourself over on the Wisconsin Policy Forum website. Jason, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thanks, Nate, anytime. The time is now 6.32, and you're welcome, and you're listening to Local News on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Dane County is home to countless beautiful parks, including Governor Nelson State Park. This week on Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull goes over the history of Madison's neighboring state park and highlights an event coming to the park tomorrow night. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. What's your favorite local state park? Like, if you have a day off and the weather is nice, where do you go to enjoy yourself? Maybe you climb the cliffs of Devil's Lake or paddle the lakes at Governor Dodge. If it's summer and you feel like driving, maybe you'll go as far as Harrington Beach or Kohler Andre and catch some waves. Every one of you is, I'm sure, a bit different, but I can say with confidence that none of you, at least at first, thought of Governor Nelson State Park. Governor Nelson is a 422-acre park located northeast of Middleton on the shore of Lake Mendota. It's the closest state park to Wisconsin's capital, but despite this, it often tends to be overlooked. I think this is partly because of its terrain. Anyone who's lived around Madison for a while is familiar with the kinds of marshes, prairies, and forests that surround the Yahara chain of lakes. Governor Nelson is all of those, and no more. The park offers no geographic surprises to a visitor, not a single pond or hill. I suppose from the north end of the park you can kind of see where Dorn and Six Mile Creeks merge, but that's not a feature that the brochures really highlight. Governor Nelson may not have a lot of obvious landmarks to see, but there's still enough to do to justify making this a park, rather than a closed preserve. If any of you said, at the beginning, that your favorite park is Governor Nelson, it's likely because you regularly go fishing. To that, hypothetical listener, I would say it still doesn't count. Governor Nelson is your favorite boat launch, at best, but Lake Mendota is where you're making the real fun memories. That said, This is one of the best boat launches in the area. It's got plenty of space, 
But better yet, it's intuitively designed to make maneuvering a trailer as easy as possible. Farther up the shoreline, you'll find beaches, one for pets and one strictly for people. Both are accompanied by large picnic areas. In total, dozens of tables shaded under mature trees. The pet swim area is more primitive. Its water entrance is small and lined with little pebbles. It also features the oldest working outhouse I've ever seen. A rounded little tower made, I think, of fiberglass painted brown on the exterior. My older listeners probably won't get my fascination with this artifact, but as someone raised entirely on plastic porta potties, that toilet offers me a look into an era long past. Thankfully, that long lived lavatory isn't the only facility the park has to offer. The human swim beach is much better equipped, with a permanent shelter and more civilized restrooms. The swim area itself has a sandy beach, relatively wide for something clearly man made. The beach is flanked on either side by little rocky breakwaters, giving the bay both shelter and a pleasing sort of crescent shape. Things are well maintained here, but this belies a long history of human habitation. As long as Madison has been inhabited by white settlers, people have escaped the isthmus for recreation on the far side of the lake. Over the last century, there were as many as three distinct summer camps just within the modern bounds of the park. Those were Camp Indianola, Camp Maria Ulbrich, and strangely, Camp Wakanda. That last one gave me pause upon first reading it, because the word Wakanda is now a widely recognized cultural reference, and one that has nothing to do with mid-century summer camps. Wakanda is now first recognized as a fictional African nation, technologically advanced, secretive, and home to the Black Panther, their monarch and superpowered protector. What does Marvel Comics' invented African haven have to do with a camp that I'm sure was once the whitest place in Dane County? Believe it or not, there is at least a tenuous connection. There's a good Washington Post article that goes into much more detail about this, but before Stan Lee ever put Black Panther to print, Wakanda, in a few different spellings, was a popular name for American summer camps. The word comes from the religions of some Plains Indians who believe in Wakanda, kind of a creator god, but never personified, way more abstract. The word has many meanings, and white settlers latched onto Wakanda as more of an idealized space or realm, a mysterious faraway land you could journey to with the hope of finding refuge and attuning yourself with nature. As a concept, that sounds like an ideal summer camp, so in an era before cultural appropriation was a concern, Camp Wakandas popped up all over the country. There's no proof that the creators of Black Panther took the name of his home from a campground, but the word would have been in common use at the time to mean a mystical faraway refuge. And that's exactly what the comic and movie Wakanda is. And there's one more weird coincidence. Governor Nelson Park features several intact Indian mounds, most of them are simple cones, but the biggest and most complex of all the mounds in the park, right by the site of former Camp Wakanda, is in the shape of a panther. How weird is that? The land on Lake Mendota's north shore has been used by humans for millennia, but the modern Governor Nelson Park is one of its last bulwarks against human encroachment. This is fitting, as the park is named for one of Wisconsin's most prominent conservationists, 
The name Gaylord Nelson isn't tossed around much these days, probably because just saying it would grind a middle school history class to a halt, but maybe it should be mentioned more often. I learned of Earth Day at a young age, but my class just kind of took its existence for granted. Of course there's a day where you all go outside and plant trees. Those Californians sure think of everything. Imagine my surprise when, just a few days ago, I learned that Earth Day wasn't some West Coast hippie idea, but rather the brainchild of a straight-laced Wisconsin senator. It's with this additional context that the park starts to make more sense to me. Governor Nelson's state park does not have the spectacular beauty of many of Wisconsin's state parks. It also can be a tough value proposition compared to the excellent parks of Dane County. It's bigger and more full-featured than most of those parks, but county parks are free, and Governor Nelson isn't if you don't already have a state park sticker. But standing on the beach, you can turn one way to see hundreds of acres of habitat lovingly preserved. Then you turn back, look across the lake, and see the city, the skyline, the people whom the governor would never meet, but for whom he ardently fought for a clean and sustainable future. In this way, I think Governor Nelson State Park is a great encapsulation of the man's legacy. At press time, it's late fall, and swimming and boating season has come to an end. Still, Governor Nelson offers plenty of opportunities for recreation. As I detailed in a previous episode, a paved bike trail now connects the park to the village of Wanakee. Additionally, there are miles of paths for hiking, which as winter wears on will open to snowshoeing and cross-country skiing. The Woodland Trail, in particular, has a detailed brochure enabling visitors to guide themselves through an educational nature walk. I probably talked about local history more than I should have today. The Wednesday News Show already has a feature for this, and Stu is much better at this sort of research than I am. However, I couldn't help but get sucked in. If you find local history as interesting as I do, and want to hear more about this area, you're in luck. Tomorrow, from 7 to 8 p.m., local historian and author Don Sanford will be at the Westport Town Hall. He wrote a whole book about the human history of Lake Mendota, but for this event, he'll be focusing specifically on stories from the area that is now Governor Nelson's State Park. The event is free and open to anyone to attend. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we hit 52 degrees yesterday late in the afternoon, which was a little higher than we thought. So that made the evening temperature plunge just that much more precipitous with 20 degrees or so dropping off the thermometer in just a couple or three hours there before finally bottoming out at 22 somewhere past midnight. We managed to inch the thermometer back up to 26 this afternoon once the skies cleared, but chill values have been hovering between about 
10 and 14 degrees all afternoon, so the uh, air temperature per se was rather an academic matter if you had to be outside for any length of time. As uh, cold as it is, though, and as cold as it will continue to feel through a second breezy night tonight, the coldest air aloft up at about two or 3,000 feet, which is determinative of our daytime temperatures, is actually now off to our east, so I'm expecting the thermometer to rebound tomorrow into the low or possibly mid-30s, with 50 degrees then uh, expected on Friday after winds have had a chance to back more southerly and strengthen again. That'll be ahead of what will be our next significant wave passing across the continent. If you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that has the surface pressure fields overlaid, that's the top image in the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage, you can see there the storm that lifted northeast over us yesterday and brought us that huge temperature swing. Uh, both that storm in its upper and surface manifestations at the same time. That's one of the nice things about that particular image. And you might note there the tight web of isobars that develop across Wisconsin in the pressure fields, especially as the storm deepens to our north upon absorbing a second low-pressure circulation that you can see sitting up over southeastern Manitoba. Otherwise, the main feature of interest on the water vapor this evening is basically just the pace and spacing and size of the upper waves that continue to swing on frame and across the continent from west to east. The wave crest that's out over Montana and Saskatchewan currently is what will help warm us this coming Friday. And the trough behind it, uh, just reaching shore now over Oregon, is what will cool us again quite sharply, actually, overnight into Saturday and what will be a kind of cognizable mimic of the storm that passed us yesterday and today. Beyond that, we'll rewarm uh, somewhat more modestly on Sunday due to a storm that will be passing further to our north up in Canada. But that will also send a stronger pulse of Arctic air down its backside gradient to keep us in uh, what will be more December-like temperatures uh, for the balance of next week, the way it's appearing. I did mention on the Monday morning forecast the possibility that we might start to see a better positioning for a winter storm to travel up through here next week, since we would be seeing better cold air penetration down the western plains. Uh, so far, the only extended model with any particular enthusiasm for a Midwestern storm is the Canadian. This would be with a wave that would be passing about Tuesday of this coming week. The uh, European and uh, global forecast systems models are uh, both uh, showing the surface response with that wave, staying uh, suppressed much further to our south down in uh, the mid-southern states. But anyway, you might keep your eye on that system as we go forward to see what comes of it. But back to tonight, the skies will continue to clear of any uh, remaining cumulus that might be out there, and temperatures will descend towards uh, the mid-teens. Uh, west and northwest winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour and are still a bit gusty through the evening will slowly come down as we go through the overnight hours down to about 4 to 8 miles per hour by dawn. And the high clouds will start to drift uh, increasingly through the skies as we get on towards daybreak as well. Tomorrow, passing high and mid-level clouds will uh, cut the sunshine a little bit, but I'm expecting skies to be mostly clear. Temperatures will reach the low 30s anyway on light southwesterly winds, backing more southerly later in the day and increasing to about 5 to 10 miles per hour. Temperatures will hold steady pretty much in the overnight as uh, a southerly low-level jet ramps up uh, shortly after sundown and uh, quite low overhead as well. That may help to provide a little gustiness to what will be strengthening southerly winds during uh, tomorrow overnight, which will come up to 12 to 18 miles per hour before dawn on Friday. That may even take temperatures up a couple of degrees in that overnight. 
And then Friday, uh, increasing cloud cover will dim the sun, but southerly winds, which will be up to 12 to 20 miles per hour later in the day, will be veering southwesterly in the afternoon. And I think that'll take us towards about 50 degrees, at least the upper 40s. Uh, Late-day showers will be possible as they were yesterday, probably uh, fairly transient as well like they were. Uh, And winds may die down for a while before then veering northwest uh, sometime in the late, uh, mid to late evening on Friday. Uh, And then starting to ratchet up sharply, that'll uh, start temperatures plummeting towards about 20 degrees by dawn on Saturday. And we'll stay in the low to mid-20s Saturday on a day which will be very much like today, quite windy as well from the west. We will warm again Sunday back into the 30s as we get set up possibly at least for something more interesting as we get into the mid part of next week. Uh, The temperature currently down here at the station on Bedford Street is 21 degrees. The dew point temperature is 9. Winds are out of the west at 12 miles per hour, still gusting up above uh, 20 miles per hour with some regularity. Uh, Mostly clear now, the skies, just a few uh, passing cumulus up at about 2,000 feet. The barometer is uh, rising steadily over the past several hours at 30.16 inches of mercury. We go now to December 1962, when citizens worked to end racial bias in housing, Urban renewal saw some success, and an invitation to the Rose Bowl was quite controversial. Stu Levitan has the news from 60 years ago on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, December 1962. As the month opens, about 75 local residents who support fair housing for blacks and other minorities meet at the First Congregational Church to form the first local unit of Wisconsin Citizens for Fair Housing. The Citizens' Lobby will act as a clearinghouse for ideas and actions, conduct educational campaigns, and draft legislation. Mrs. Virginia Hart is named temporary chair of the group, which is obviously needed. A week later, a survey is released showing that only 15% of the city's landlords would even consider renting to a black tenant. Marshall Colston, a member of the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, tells a Wisconsin Student Association symposium that a higher percentage of blacks than whites own their homes, probably because it's so hard for them to find a rental unit. Colston, a supervisor with the Dane County Department of Public Assistance, also says there's, quote, ample evidence that qualified blacks are discriminated against in the job market. At the end of the month, Colston is elected president of the Madison NAACP without opposition. Board members also elected at the meeting of the YWCA on State Street include outgoing President Odell Taliaferro and filmmaker Stuart Honish. So far this year, Mayor Henry Reynolds has killed the Monona Terrace Public Auditorium and Exhibition Hall and fired the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. But his plans to hire a new architect hit a roadblock this month, as the Board of Public Works refuses to go along with a recommendation of the Auditorium Committee to hire the Chicago firm of Shaw Metz. And the council backs the board, reaffirming that it makes the recommendation and the committee's role is merely advisory. Meanwhile, the Wright Foundation proceeds on its lawsuit seeking $122,000 in accounts receivable. 
Good news for three urban renewal projects. The Federal Urban Renewal Administration approves a planning grant of $129,000 for a 71-acre project in South Madison, south of Winger Creek and east of Beld Street. Madison Redevelopment Authority Director Roger Rupnow says the project will focus on rehabbing the 250 homes in the area rather than clearing the area and building new, as is being done on the Triangle Project. Across West Washington Avenue from the Triangle, the Brittingham Urban Renewal gets the green light to start construction as the Federal Housing Administration agrees to ensure the mortgage for the 150-unit complex to be known as Sampson Apartments, the first residential urban renewal area in the state of Wisconsin. And the Redevelopment Authority moves forward on a pilot leasing program, renting two prefab single-family homes in a two-flat apartment building, which it will then sublease to tenants displaced from the Triangle. Schools make news. On the 11th, several hundred people braved below zero temperatures for the dedicated of Conrad A. Elvium Elementary School on the far southeast side, near its eponym's boyhood home in McFarland. Constance Elvium tells the capacity crowd honoring her late husband that there could be, quote, no greater tribute than to have a school named after him. The school was built in a breakneck 18 weeks after approval of the bond issue during the spring election. And at the public hearing for his final school budget on the 17th, school superintendent Philip Falk bemoans last year's $25,000 cut in the proposed teacher salary schedule and urges support for higher pay. Unless we can beef up the starting pay of our teachers, he says, we are going to be loading up our schools with mediocrity. Two weeks later, Falk retires after almost 24 years as superintendent. And there's lots of news from the University of Wisconsin. Personal freedom comes to the women of Barnard Hall, as the university's powerful Student Life and Interest Committee agrees in principle to its request that all junior and senior residents and sophomores with above a 2.5 average have key privileges and thus no curfew. Co-eds under 21 will need parental consent, and all are subject to discipline if they let unauthorized persons use their key. Final approval is expected in time for a year-long pilot program to start in February. But the committee does not approve a demand from the Associated Women students for a campus-wide liberalization of curfew, referring that matter to a subcommittee. Political debate in the Lakeshore dorms turns ugly as supporters of the House Un-American Activities Committee shout obscenities and edge towards violence against members of the University Students for the Abolition of HUAC trying to distribute literature at Cronsage Hall. At a meeting of about 50 dorm residents the next night, it's just heckling. There's university news that will affect the whole city to come, as a group of its high-powered friends form a corporation to buy and develop land on the south side of the 700 and 800 blocks of University Avenue for the university's use. Among the directors of University Park Corp., builder Milton Findorf, banker Lucian Hanks, and meat magnate Oscar G. Meyer, Jr., and honors and controversies for the Rose Bowl-bound Wisconsin football, the Big Ten champions ranked number two in the nation. Star receiver Pat Richter is drafted by the Washington football team, the first Badger taken in the first round of the NFL draft since Heisman Trophy winner Alan Amici in 1955. The Madison native, 
the first Badger to earn nine varsity letters since 1923, had another stellar season, capped by his unanimous selection to both the AP and UPI All-American teams. That's how he gets to appear with the other All-Americans on The Ed Sullivan Show and the two-month-old Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But not everyone is happy that Richter and his teammates will be playing football on New Year's Day. Let's make this Rose Bowl trip the last one, the Daily Cardinal editorializes, denouncing what it calls the juvenile frenzy that accompanies the big game and diverts students' attention away from their education. Administration and faculty agree, to a point. University President Fred Harvey Harrington tells the regents that bowl games, quote, involve a type of overemphasis that is undesirable, but that it's too late to turn this invitation down. And while the faculty has for years opposed the contract requiring members of the Big Ten Conference to participate in the Rose Bowl, its powerful university committee adopts a motion that the university, quote, has a moral obligation to go to Pasadena. Nonsense, says the Daily Cardinal. The university's obligation is to education, not to, quote, take on all the frills and burdens of a hopped-up student body and panting alumni. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Waggy helped produce the newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is a live edition of Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.